Well, good morning, Redemption Church. Good to see all of you this morning. I was just over on the other side for a minute looking at the kids. They were screaming, they were hollering, they were singing, they were having a great time. And now we're here to learn Matt's history lesson of the day. So, no, no, there's going to be some good stuff in here, but we're going to do some history stuff. Now, as we get underway, you know, I was thinking about this. Some things you need to know about me. I am a Jeep-driving, gym-loving, kilt-wearing nerd, all right? I am a nerd to the core, man. Geek is chic, and I'm into that. And so I love nerdy things like Star Wars and Star Trek, but one of my favorite nerdy things is Lord of the Rings. Any Lord of the Rings fans in the room? See? Welcome to the nerd club. All right, so so I'm a nerd, and so much so that when it comes to the movies in particular, I have watched like every documentary, every behind the scenes, I mean, just all of it, right? Because I just love to understand how Peter Jackson was wanting to tell the story. And one of the tidbit things that... Um, I, I came across at some point is that from a cinematography perspective what he decided to do is in every wide shot the characters are moving from left to right on the screen every time for all three movies right so then when I watched it after I learned that I'm like they really are they're going from left to right every single time he never broke the rule right and he did that because he wanted to communicate this idea of journey Right? That they're leaving the Shire, they're going to Mordor, they're going to destroy the ring. And so everything's about this movement away from a place and toward a place. And I thought, man, that was brilliant on the part of Peter Jackson. But before Peter Jackson did that, Luke the doctor did that in his gospel. In fact, the entire Gospel of Luke, it's this idea of movement, of journey, of progression. In fact, since chapter 9, we've seen where he says outright, at that point, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. That's the movement. And so what you begin to see throughout that section, all the way up to where we're at now, is this idea that Jesus is traveling from the place of ministry to the place of mission. He's going from where he was doing all of the preaching and teaching and healing, and while he's still doing it on the journey, he's going to the place of mission, which is the city where he's going to give his life as a ransom for many. It's the apex of the cross and the resurrection and the good news and the story that we seek to tell to nations and generations, right? All of that is coming. And what's great about today is that he is finally crossing the threshold. We've been moving toward Jerusalem, but now finally we will enter the city today and we will enter the last week of the life of Jesus. Now, for us as a church, that will take us about four months, all right? But it's still the life of Jesus, the week of Jesus, the final week where everything comes together and the pressure points are felt. And on this particular day, as he enters the city, there's a lot of things going on, right? And that's going to start to set the stage for everything that we are to learn about. And so right now, I want to give us just a moment for all of us to settle our hearts, to go before our Lord in prayer, to kind of receive what he has for us today. I'll give you a few moments of silence, and I'll go ahead and pray, and we'll jump right into Luke chapter 19, where we're at today. Jesus, I thank you that you save us purely by your grace. 
it's not by our work, it's not by our effort, it's not by our intuitiveness, it is by your grace that we are rescued, and yet in that, you call us to activity and action, you call us to conviction and difference, and so much of what we'll even look at today and over the next series of weeks is how you do save us by grace to make an impact in this world and to do it in ways that are very upside down and backwards, very counterintuitive to the ways of the world, which I think are all the steps of faith that you call us to embark in. And so as we learn from your entry into the city today, I pray that we will love what it is you're about. We will love to live out what it is you're about, and that we will do so in your name, for your fame, for your glory, and for your gospel's sake. And so, Jesus, we thank you for the privilege of learning of your story, being on this journey through the Gospel of Luke, and I pray that we receive what you have for us, uh, whether we are in a state where we're feeling weak and weary, or we're feeling energized and ready to take on the next kind of challenge that's before us, whatever our state, I pray that we sense your peace, which is the theme so much of the day, and we sense your strength. So Jesus, we love you, and we thank you in your good name. Amen. So like I said, Jesus has been kind of rolling with the fellas, right? They've been on a road trip now for a while, face set toward Jerusalem, but today is the day they will move out of the valley where Jericho is. They will start to ascend toward Jerusalem. They will pass from being below sea level to above sea level as they're making the journey to Bethany. Once they get to Bethany, they'll pass through the Mount of Olives. They'll begin to drop down into the Kidron Valley. Weirdly enough, as Jesus is getting ready to enter the city, he will pass a simple garden called Gethsemane right by there and he's going to end up there about a week later after this and then he's going to enter into the eastern portion of the city that's the journey before him right and and all of that is is going to be kind of uh, heightened by the fact that as this is happening there's going to be all sorts of emotion right as the crowd begins to grow and swell and more people begin to flock into what's going on you're going to see enthusiasm you're going to see excitement you're going to see hope and passion but at the same time you're going to see fear and frustration and deep weeping and remorse it's going to be like an adolescent any given tuesday right it's just all the feels all the emotions packed into this one singular day as jesus is emerging into the capital city But this setting is in relationship to the story we looked at last week, right? So that story sets the tone for this next week, and you want to understand that. And so last week we did story time with Jesus, crisscross applesauce, we all sat down, Jesus told a story. And in that story, it was like he talked about the fact that there's a king and a kingdom and their servants and their subjects. And in the midst of that, the servants, some of them obey. In the midst of that, some of the servants disobey. But then the subjects of the king and the kingdom, they think they want their king. They think they want their kingdom. But when they find out what it really is, they reject both king and kingdom. All right, so the story is mixed with all of these different ideas and images and concepts And that story then sets the backdrop of the week. In other words, that story is designed to communicate really the whole environment that Jesus is dealing with in that final portion of his life as he accomplishes his mission. In fact, one of the things I didn't get a chance to do last week when we looked at the story is notice it has a structure. We have a slide for this right now that kind of shows the structure right? But it gives us a sense of what's going on, right? He was nearing Jerusalem. That's the way it starts. It ends. He went toward Jerusalem. Those are bookends. He told a story. He finished up a story. That idea of story is the bookends. And then in the middle is everything Jesus is dealing with, 
in his sphere of influence, there are people who are his servants, his apostles, his core disciples. And as those servants, sometimes they're going to obey, and sometimes they're going to disobey. And then also within that sphere is a whole mess of people that think they're on Team Jesus, and they're going to claim to be on Team Jesus, and they're going to say they want God's king in God's way according to God's timeline, but you're going to find really quickly that they don't want Jesus as king. They don't want the kingdom that Jesus is promoting. They're not about the business of what Jesus is investing into. And so Jesus tells that story. He says, listen, fellas, I know you think you're on, on board but you're not quite on board. You have assumptions about what I'm doing. The crowds have assumptions about what I'm doing. The leaders have assumptions about what I'm doing. And what we're going to find over the next week is that everything gets leveled out. We're going to see who's truly Team Jesus and who's just on the bandwagon. They're a fan, but they're not ready to be a follower. Like All of that is going to crystallize in this particular section. Over the next week, we're going to see who's on board with what. Are people servants, or are they just subjects? That's going to be the core. And even in that, is their servants? Are they obeying or disobeying? And what we're going to see from the disciples is sometimes they're nailing it, and sometimes they're blowing it. By the end of the week, we'll see they massively blow it. But as the week starts, they're doing pretty well. So we're starting in verse 28 of chapter 19. It says, After telling this story, Jesus went on the road toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead, and he said, Go into that village over there, and as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden before. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks, Why are you untying that colt? Just say, The Lord needs it. Now, when it comes to this little um, uh, donkey hijacking here, uh, like, we're not sure the details behind it. In other words, it could have been that Jesus actually had prearranged with somebody in the town to go ahead and, and conscript this small, unridden donkey for service. That might be the case. Or what could equally be true is that this is sort of a supernatural event. So Jesus tells the two disciples, just go and find the donkey. They get there, and they start doing it, and somebody inquires, and they just simply say, the Lord has need of it, and they go, oh, oh I feel something in my heart. Take the donkey. Like, that could be what's going on or literally they're just stealing the donkey we we don't know the backdrop of this whole thing but they go and they do this so verse 32 they went and found the colt just as jesus had said and sure enough as they are untying it the owners asked them why are you untying that colt this is a donkey hijacking at this point to me all right so but the disciples simply replied the lord needs it so they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over the donkey, and then Jesus rode on the donkey. Now, what I love about this is this highlights this idea of sometimes the servants in the story are going to obey, and sometimes they're not going to obey. Here they do a great job. Jesus tells them to do something that by all accounts would be kind of strange. Go there, just start untying a donkey, and bring it here. And when the person inquires, why are you doing this? They just gave the answer. We're doing what the king said. No matter how crazy it sounds, it's strange. I know, we just seem like we're stealing your donkey boat. We're just doing what we were told. And so from that, they, they go on the move, right? That's how they start the week. But like I said, by the end of the week, Jesus is going to tell them to do very particular things, and they don't do those things. And they're going to run, and they're going to flee, and they're going to fail. But they're still servants. 
But in that, it will be an occasion and an opportunity for them to taste the forgiving grace of Jesus. That even in the face of our greatest failures, there's still forgiveness. But the week is early. They're on top of it. They're doing the right thing. And so they grab this colt, they bring it to Jesus, and Jesus sits on this mighty steed of a beast to show he is king and he can take his victory march into Jerusalem. See, in and of itself right there, that, that should get our attention to the story. That Jesus isn't a normal kind of king. His victory may look a bit different than what's anticipated. Because here's the thing you want to know about Matt's history lesson now. When it came to Jerusalem, it was the epicenter of challenge, warfare, defeat, different victors at different times riding into the city. The Babylonians had ridden into the city. The Greeks had ridden into the city. Now the Romans had ridden in and had control for a while. They knew what it was like to have a conquering king ride through their gates. And every time that happens, it's the same way powerful horses, ornate chariots behind these horses, rows of soldiers with their gear in total array, and from that, a subdued people saying, yay, Greeks, yay, Romans, yay, Babylonians, because they'll kill us if we don't cheer. Like, so, so that's what they knew, right? And so now what you have is this long-awaited-for king of the Jews, this Messiah you wanted, and he comes riding in in a Prius, you know? It's like, really, of all of our options, no great white horse, little teeny donkey, never been ridden before, baby donkey Jesus riding person. Like, what is this all about? That's the tip off. That Jesus is a different king. In fact, in Matthew, he highlights this, this awkwardness. He says, your king comes to you humbly, riding a colt, a never ridden baby donkey. <laughs> that... that should cause us to go, oh, then, then maybe this Jesus is not a normal king. And maybe the ways that he gets things done in the world is not like a normal king. And maybe we have decided to pledge ourselves, our lives, bow our knee, and give our sword, in essence, to a very different kind of king than the king that we normally anticipate in our world. The challenge is, is that the bias and longings and assumptions of the subjects of the story. Uh, the overall population that says they want a king and kingdom that's sent from God, that whole group is operating at a different level. And so as Jesus is now beginning to move toward the city and people are starting to gather around this, they're thinking, this is our king, but it's not the king that they're really gonna want. It's not the king that they desire because here's what they want. They don't actually want righteousness. They want revenge, right? They want revenge, they want vindication. They want their perception of justice, but driven through the filter of their own self-interest. Not justice for all, but justice for me. Right? That's what they want. So they want a revenge king, not a righteousness-driven king who may do things very, very differently. But they're intrigued, and so they begin to flock. Verse 36, as he rode along, the crowds spread out their garments. And we also see from the other gospel accounts that they brought palm branches in the midst of this. And when he reached, reached the place that was where the road started to go down toward the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and to sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles that they had seen. 
And they sang out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the heavens of highest. And then it goes into John, says, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of the Jews. Hosanna, Hosanna. This is what they're celebrating. All of this is right here. And so again, we see the scene of the story. Jesus tells a story to correct their views of kingdom and king. And now the king is on the scene. And his servants are doing what they're told, and they get a donkey, and he rides in, and everything else. And now the crowds are growing, but they're more like the servants of the story. Not the servants, but they're more like the, the subjects of the story. That Right now, they're on the bandwagon, right? Thinking they want what he offers. But at this point, they're all excited. They're all pumped up. Because they think he represents their longings, their cravings, right? Their pre-written outcomes of how this story should end. And you see it in what they're doing and what they're singing and how they're doing what they're doing. So a couple of things you want to understand about this scene as it unfolds from a historical perspective, right? So imagine you go from maybe dozens to hundreds to who knows, maybe a thousand as they're getting near the city, all cheering, this is our king. This is our king. King right here right? On the donkey, this is, our, this is our guy. This is the one that's going to vindicate us. If you're a Roman official watching that unfold, you're freaking out right now. That's sedition. That is revolution in the making. Rome was very used to these alleged messiahs rising up in the ranks of the people and trying to overthrow the Romans. And now a giant crowd is swelling right outside the capital city saying, all right, we're going to take this back. That's what they're saying with King Jesus. So Rome's going to look at that and instantly be concerned. And they should be. Because that is the intention of the crowd. Part of the reason we know that is that they're literally sawing off palm branches and putting them in the road as Jesus is coming along. Don't just think those palm branches are a nice way of making a carpet. No, th those are symbols for them. So if we go back in time to the last real big revolt of the Jews, it was against the Syrians. It was led by a man named Simon. And the whole thing is that Simon drove the Syrians out of, or yeah, drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem, kind of for a short time reestablished Israelite rule. And you know how they commemorated that? Palm branches. That was the symbol of their revolt. That was the symbol of them purging the evil from their society. In fact, so much so that when they took the coins of the Greeks and the Syrians, they, they melted them down and they reminted coins with palm branches on the coins to say, this is our territory. We took it back. So the palm branch for the Israelite is don't tread on me. That's their symbol. Don't mess with us. We can take our stuff back. So they have a king, palm branches. Rome's going to look at that and say, that's worth watching. That is problematic. But then add to it the song that they're singing. It comes out of Psalm 118. And there's a number of things in Psalm 118 you could highlight. We just read part of it this morning, right, for our, our public reading. And, and that was some stuff where you go, like, you should really center on that. But in the first century, with angry Jewish people that want vindication and they want judgment in self-righteousness, they're going to center on a different part of Psalm 118. In fact, in that section, it's like the king character of the story. He says this. He says, Though the hostile nations surround me, I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. Yes, they surrounded and attacked me, 
but I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. They swarmed around me like bees and blazed against me like a crackling fire, but I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. And then what do the people say? Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? They're singing that song quite realistically from that framework. He doesn't look fancy on a donkey. We get it a little weird, but here comes our king. And in the authority of the name of the Lord, he will destroy them. He will destroy them all. He will thoroughly destroy them. Right? This song in their hearts at this time, based on the conditions, is very much like Toby Keith's Courtesy of the USA, if you know that song, right? I mean, it's that same thing. It's like, we're going to get you, we're going to smash you, we're going to put a boot in your butt. That's what we're going to do. That's what our king is all about. That's the way the crowd is seeing this entry. Now, I can understand where these people are at. I mean, they've been under the boot of Rome for a long time, and they want change. Like all human beings, when they're oppressed, they want change, but the change that they want and the way that they want it and the change that Jesus will bring and the way that he brings it are diametrically opposite. They want peace through war. They want redemptive violence, right? The only way we can win is we crush the bad guys and we're elevated as the good guys. That's the way the world works. But then Jesus is gonna do something altogether opposite. By the end of the week, he's going to look like a defeated king that willingly lays his life down and willingly is mocked and beaten and eventually impaled. And he says, forgive them. They know not what they do. He shows mercy and grace and generosity to his killers and accusers. This is so opposite. They can't even begin to fathom the kind of king he is versus the kind of king that they want. In fact, the way we know is that the crowd on this day is saying, this is our guy, right? And by the end of the week, the same crowd is saying, crucify this punk. If anybody you want to give us back, give us Barabbas, because that guy's a thug. That guy got arrested for killing Romans. We want that guy. Don't give us the guy that's all wimpy and weak and giving himself up for everybody. That's not what we want. So the same crowd, excited on this day, will demand his execution in just a few days. I mean, it's so backwards. But on this day, they're singing this song, they're celebrating his praises, even though their motives are wrong and their aspirations are flawed. But the Pharisees, they're watching this and they're like, we see a problem. And the problem isn't just the fervor of the crowds, but they know where this can lead. It says in verse 39, but some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, teacher, Rebuke your followers for they're saying things like this. Don't let them speak in these ways. But Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. Now the question is, well, why would the Pharisees want Jesus to tell everybody to shut up? I mean, they're no lovers of Rome. They want a conquering messianic king to deal with the problems. But here's what we know about them. They've concluded that Jesus isn't the guy. Right? They're early adopters of the subjects of the kingdom that don't want the king. They bought into that one early. And they're watching this unfold. They're like, man, the crowds think Jesus is the guy. We don't think Jesus is the guy. This is going to get the ire up of Rome. Rome is going to come and crack down on all of us if we don't get this really quieted down. So they say, Jesus, would you get your crowd under control? It's risking everything. We don't need this trouble right now. That's their heart's. 
Now it's interesting because by the end of the week they'll gain control of the crowd, won't they? Jesus won't control the crowd as they want, but by the end of the week they'll say, hey crowd, let's get a new mantra going. Crucify, crucify, crucify. But on this day, they're singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now even though the crowd is fickle, in some ways what they're singing about is still true. That's why Jesus says, you know what, if they didn't do it, the rocks would cry out. Their motives may be wrong, their hearts may be off, and a week later, they're going to condemn me. But right now, what they're saying is right, even though they may be wrong. This is in verse 41. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. He says, how I wish today that you, of all people, would understand the way of peace highlight that underline that put that in quotes the way of peace this is what he wishes they knew they're saying peace on heaven they're chanting peace as he comes into the city and he's saying i wish you knew what i mean by peace i wish you knew but now it is too late and peace is hidden from your eyes it's like the full trajectory of the whole history of israel hits in this moment and while they're celebrating and their smile on their face, smiles on their faces, and they're, they're all excited about everything, in this juxtaposition way, you have Jesus then heavy hearted and weeping. It seems so opposite the environment. But see, again, Jesus knows their hearts. He peers into the situation, He understands their bias. And therefore, He understands that their cheers for peace are again through violence, their cheers for peace are means that are backwards and opposite of his own, and he knows that his way of peace will be altogether opposite. And so he feels the weight of the difference between he and the crowd. Because if they were to embrace him as king, they would then embrace his means of peace. But they're going to reject his means of peace, which is why they're rejecting him as king. In fact, just going back to last week, this is why I kind of walked us through the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain and everything else, because when you analyze that message, which is his message of the kingdom, it's amazing how much of that message is designed to take the idea of peace and actualize it in the world. So what Jesus is going to do with the cross and resurrection is he's going to establish peace between us and God. And in that, he's going to deposit a peace in us through the Spirit so that when we are relinquished to the Spirit, peace flows out of our life. But that's not just to be some esoteric, just me and God, emotionalism, spirituality, and it stops there. No, this internal thing of peace forged by what Jesus does on the cross and resurrection to make peace between us and God possible, that is to flesh itself out in the world. Right? You are not to be a, con or a cul-de-sac of peace. You're meant to be a conduit of peace. That's what we're all meant to be. We're, mo we're supposed to bring peace into the environments that we live in. And when you go through the Sermon on the Mount, so much of it is about that quest. Just think about the way it starts. Blessed are the poor in spirit as opposed to the proud. Why? Because the proud disrupt peace. But the poor in spirit, they long for it. That's why he values things like Meekness, strength under control, because that's going to forge peace. That's why he actually says in the thing, blessed are the peacemakers, not just peacekeepers, peace creators. It's why we deal with persecution the way that we do, that we don't become the persecutors, but we receive persecution with joy, because that is the way of peace. 
It's why we want to go out of our way to reconcile, to keep our word, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to love our enemy, to not judge others, but be critical of ourselves and gracious toward others. All of that forges peace. That's Jesus' big idea in a lot of ways. Peace between us and God so that the peace of the Spirit in us can bring peace to the world around us. That's what King Jesus is all about. He wants to advance the peace. And had this crowd accepted his kingship on his terms, they would have known and enjoyed peace. But he's riding into the city, and he's saying, had you guys seen it? Had you understood it? Had you owned it? Your future would be very different. Your trajectory would be radically altered. But instead, he looks back on their stubborn history. He looks around at their short-sighted hosannas. He looks within to their retaliatory hearts. And then from that, he looks ahead to their future. He says in verse 43, But before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and enclose in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God had come to visit you. This description is very tangible, right? It's very physical. Had you received me as your king, had you decided to embrace my marching orders of the kingdom, your future would look different. Instead, your children will suffer. Your city will suffer. You will suffer as a nation because you didn't want to peace build in my way. You didn't want the peace between you and God. You didn't want the peace of the Spirit. You didn't want the peace that I forge, and you didn't want to live out the peace that I call you to. And so everything will be utterly devastated. In rejecting their Savior, they reject their future. And from that, God will abandon them and also their enemies will destroy them. And you see this. So like when we get to the end of the week and Jesus is crucified, there in the kind of the early to mid-30s uh, AD, that is, um, you will see that God abandons the nation. There's this scene where Jesus is on the cross and as he's on the cross, there's this temple scene and inside the temple, there's this big veil that separates the people from God. It's because God's presence is there. Well, the veil is torn from the top to the bottom and what that symbolizes is his presence isn't there anymore. You rejected your king. You rejected the way of peace. He's, he's left the building. You're on your own. And for the next 30 to 40 years, that's all Israel's doing. In their own strength, their own might, their own power, their own determination, their own wherewithal, they're flying solo. And then over the course of that time, they begin to kind of engage in these little micro-insurrections. We're going to drive out Rome. We're going to get our way. We're going to get our vengeance. We're not seeking peace. We're seeking war to be free. And finally, in the late 60s, going into 70 AD, it all hits 143 days of siege. The Romans just lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. By the end, 600,000 Jews are dead. The city is just obliterated. The temple is reduced to nothing except a foundation. Like Jesus tried to warn them. Had you chosen the way of peace? Had you been choosing to follow me and then be peacemakers and turn the other cheek and go the extra mile and love your Roman enemies? Your world would have been very different. But it wasn't. 
You told me to pound sand and now you're ground to dust. That's the tragedy of the story. At so many levels, the rejection of their king forged their future at many different intervals and in many different ways. It's no wonder to me that Jesus weeps. And I couldn't help but, but think about this whole scene and, and think, like, I don't want us to be a kind of people that makes him weep too. Because we look at his ideas of peace and go, they don't work. They're silly. They're naive. Sermon on the Mount is really awesome to memorize, but it's really too difficult to do. Sermon on the Plain is great. Stitch it on a pillow. Put it on a coffee mug. Make a bumper sticker out of it. Get everybody a keychain with a quote. But we don't do it. I think about something that Jesus' little brother James says in chapter 3 of his letter. He says, if you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it, he says, by the way you live. Live in an honorable way with an honorable life. Do good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. He says, but if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth, boasting and lying. One of the ways we do that is we go, no, 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 no. And we try to be really biblical about something that is not really biblical at all. That's James's concern. He says, for jealousy and selfish ambition are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will, you will find disorder and every evil kind of thing. He says, but, but the wisdom from above is first of all pure, and it's also peace-loving. Not just peace-tolerant or peace is great. No, it loves peace. It longs for peace. It hungers for peace. It wants to figure out how to actualize peace in the world. It's peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is filled with mercy and the fruit of good deeds. Notice again how much action is involved in this. Show it by your life. Show it by your deeds. Show it by your words. He says, in addition to this, it shows no favoritism, and it's always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. It's that last section I love so much, right? The king seeks servants who do what they're called to do. And here I'm looking at Jesus' little brother saying, I can tell you what we're supposed to do. When it comes to the king of peace who had taught the way of peace and brought a gospel of peace, you are to believe the gospel of peace, have peace with God, peace of the spirit, and then you bring that peace to everything that touches your life. You bring that peace to your work, you bring that peace to your marriage, to your parenting, to your finances, to your community, whatever it is. Your classmates, your school, you list it. We're the ambassadors of this peace. Israel rejected it. And oftentimes, we can track out Christian history and see where Christians even reject the way of peace, where we go, no, it's too messy, it's too naive, it's too problematic, it's too hard. But Jesus calls us to be faithful servants, right? To do crazy things like invest into what he cares about, even if we go, man, though, what if the investment fails? That was the whole story again. He's like, why are you worrying about the investment failing? Just do what I tell you to do. Just invest what I call you to invest in. I love that those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Do, do you see the linkage there? 
right? Like, like, like he's like, if, if you really want to see transformation in your world, if you really want to see a society altered, if you want to see a culture uh, get back on track to things that really matter, he says, it's not about your vote, it's not about your policies, it's not about the social things that you back. He's like, when you sow God's peace, that creates a harvest of righteousness. We sometimes just choose lesser things and we try to battle it out with the world. If we can just drive out the bad people in the world and put good people in their place, everything's gonna be fine. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's fine and dandy, but that's not how my kingdom works. My kingdom works when my people believe that by having peace with God, and allowing the peace of the Spirit to come through their life. And they carry the gospel of peace and the message of peace with the means of peace, with the heart of peace, and wanting to peace make, not just truce or peace keep, but peace make. Man, that changes the world. That would have changed the world of Israel, but they rejected it. Jesus sees where it's going. But even for all of that, you know what's awesome about Jesus? He doesn't give up on the, on the project. He doesn't enter that day weeping, going, oh, it's over, and I'm not going to bother. He goes in weeping, and he says, with Israel, it's over. But I'm still going to bother. I'm still going to do it. By the end of the week, this whole crowd will reject me, but I'm not done making peace. The soldiers will mock me, and I'm not done making peace. I'll say, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Right? When the world is arrayed against God as God has given himself up, he's like, I'm still going to make peace. I'm going to make peace for the world between the world and my Father through my sacrifice. Right? If any time you would think Jesus would finally just say, all right, I'm grabbing the sword, I'm going at it. It would be at the end of the week, but that's not what he does. He relentlessly makes peace through sacrifice. And then from that he says, and you're my servants and you get to do the same thing. I don't know about you, but that's what I want to be a part of. I don't want the easy way. I want the hard way of peace. I want the hard way of the gospel of peace because it actually changes things. Let's go and pray together. Jesus, you call us to a hard and difficult way. You said that point blank at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. I pray that we will rise up to that hard and difficult way because you've given us your Holy Spirit who bears in us love, joy, and peace from that patience, kindness, goodness, these wonderful things that back love, joy, and peace. I pray that we will long for what Israel rejected, that we will sense from you that which is most world-altering and that from that, we will go out into our world with the gospel peace, with a heart of peace, longing to see peace, even from people that don't want peace, even from people that stand against us or stand against you or want to make our lives difficult, that we will be relentless like you and say, no, you cannot disrupt me from being a peacemaker in your life, no matter what. Like, Jesus, do that in us so that we might do that for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.